But first of all, we had to nail down positively Gordon Hamilton. He had been cremated, so nothing remained of his body. Most of us leave something behind. Most of us leave a watch or a wallet or something we've touched or some precious object. Gordon Hamilton left absolutely nothing behind at all. He did a bit of painting and decorating to help Angus Sinclair. Well, he decorated some flats and parts of Glasgow and he fitted one of these polystyrene coving things round the ceiling. Aha, says the forensic investigator. Right, let's get that coving and get it off because behind that coving, you've got a veritable time capsule. And examine carefully behind the, the coving um, using the most sensitive to techniques and they found traces of Gordon Hamilton behind a polystyrene coving of a, a piece of painting and decorating that he had done 28 years before. Good afternoon, Tom. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Simon. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Good to see you in daylight for a change. Tom, we've had some questions in and really wanting us to clarify some of the police terms that you and I can slip into so easily because we're talking to each other. Would you mind doing that for me? It seems obvious to you and I, but someone said, that, can you clarify exactly what the locus is? It's Latin and it basically means crime scene. Okay. It's the crime scene. We should perhaps speak more about crime scenes, which is more generally known, but it's just old habits die hard. Yes. And the plural, loci, L-O-C-I. Loci. Yes. Yeah, right. Where there's multiple or more than one locus. And the locus, I was thinking about it when I read the question, because the locus is an integral part of everything that the police do, because when you charge someone, you charge them at a particular date and time, and at a particular place, that's the charge. And then you go on to say what it is that they've done and what they might have contravened by doing that. So it's very integral to police work, and it's something that's why it's jargon, because it's something we use all the time. So, Tom, the second question was about some of the other terminology that you and I use, and this in particular one was DO, which I think you introduced in the last episode. Can you just clarify the DO for our listeners? A DO is a, a general term given to a detective officer. So if you talk about a group of DOs, uh, they could be anything. They could be detective constables. They could be detective sergeants. It's a sort of a collective name for detective officers. Yeah. Okay. And it was a confusing one even within the job because of the duty officer. Some people would call the duty officer yes. DO. Yes. That's so there's there's yeah. always yeah. these crossovers. Yeah. Luckily, when you finished, you had to rank all of your own because you were the only one in the force at the time, but deputy chief constable. <laughs> Uh, I've got one more. What exactly does Tom mean by male semen? Uh, is there any other kind? <laughs> no, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. No, there's no other kind that I know of. Although in this day and age, you never know. <laughs> yeah, you can no, choose. No, no semen. Yes, that's right. Okay, Tom, let's crack on. Let's maybe recap just for a minute or two where we were in the last episode. You had actually named the person identified by the DNA years later because of the developments and scientific developments that had been made as Angus Robertson Sinclair. And now we had got on to the inquiry that was going to take place now that you could centre on Angus Sinclair. We'd obviously established also in prison at that time and had been, I think, since about 1980. So he was safely incarcerated behind bars, which takes the pressure off to a great degree as far as the inquiry is concerned. 
Can you take us from there then? Angus Sinclair was identified in 2004 and after a long search for the other male profile that was found on Helen's coat. We still hadn't identified him, but after developments of DNA in DNA technology, the scientists managed to identify a second profile and that second profile was Angus Sinclair. Now, we had never heard of Angus Sinclair in the east of Scotland, but he was very well known through in, in your neck of the woods. And thankfully, as you say, Angus Sinclair at that time was serving two life sentences for a murder that he committed in 1978 and for the assault, the terrible, at least serious assault, sexual assaults on a number of children back in the 1970s as well, for which he'd been given a life sentence in 1980. So he was safely in prison. So we had time to sit back and take a long, hard look at Angus Sinclair. Now, Angus Sinclair was born in 1945 in the Townhead area of Glasgow. And there's nothing remarkable about his childhood that we could ever find. For instance, he wasn't a victim of sexual crime himself. He didn't have any of these hallmarks that you look for in, in sex offenders. First time he comes to notice, he's about 14 years old, and he comes to police attention for a lewd and libidinous practices, which is a sexual offence, which for a 14-year-old is quite an interesting, uh, quite a sinister sort of offence to be committing at 14. And, and he receives a borstal sentence for that, but as soon as he gets out, he becomes involved in something a lot more serious because he's arrested and charged with the murder of a wee 10-year-old girl called Catherine Rehill. Now, Catherine is a neighbour of Sinclair's, and the murder is a sexually motivated murder where Sinclair lures wee Catherine into his house and then attacks her, sexually assaults her, and murders her, strangles her, and then throws her body over the banister of the stair down into the stairwell pretending that it's been an accident, and Sinclair is the first on the scene, he's the informant, he's making a lot of fuss about what's happened to poor little Catherine, etc. Now, eventually, the penny drops that it's not been an accident and that Angus Sinclair is responsible for it at the age of 15. Now, reading that really sends a chill down your spine because this is a highly organised, very deliberate, crime for a 15-year-old involving planning, execution, and cover-up. And by the time he appears for trial, he's 16 years old, and the judge actually says, the judge in his summing up, a long-dead judge now says, this is the most serious crime, and this man, Sinclair, will represent a danger to women in the future. He actually says that. There's also a psychiatrist report done at the time who says the same thing, says that, that this man's sex drive, his attitude to women is going to be dangerous as he goes forward. So there's all sorts of big markers against Angus Sinclair's name, even when he's 16 years old. So he's convicted of culpable homicide on the basis of his age. And this is something you see in the Scottish justice system. If somebody's murdered someone, if they're only in their teens, they sometimes give them the benefit that they only convict them of culpable homicide, so they do not have to give the man life sentence. So he's sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, and then we make a huge mistake. 
in my view, one of the big mistakes with Angus Sinclair, because we put him straight into the adult prison system. And he goes to Aberdeen Prison as a 16-year-old into the most hardened group of prisoners you could imagine who do nothing at all to rehabilitate or anything like that, quite the reverse. They actually make the situation worse because they make him a thoroughly hardened criminal, utterly hardened to any form of interrogation or police investigation. Tom, how could that happen? I thought, naively, obviously, I thought that there were safeguards for juveniles when they turned 16, before they're 18, all that stuff, that we had a system designed to cope with children becoming adults and having to be incarcerated. Why did that get bypassed? We do have that, but of course, this was 1960. Ah, okay, okay. Sinclair's born in, in 45, we're talking about 1960. And while he committed the offence when he was 15, by the time he appeared for a trial and he actually pled guilty, the only thing he's ever pled guilty to, he pled guilty and he was 16 years old. So he was an adult in the eyes of the law. And clearly, I don't know whether in 1960 there were no facilities for young offenders the way we have them now. I'm not sure. But if there were, they didn't use them in the case of Angus Sinclair. I think Angus Sinclair would have been a dangerous person anyway. I think that didn't help. And it certainly didn't help in any uh, future uh, interactions with the police service. Any chance of intervention there or rehabilitation or re-education was lost. Uh, Whether that would ever have happened in a Borstal environment or young offenders institution or whatever was to come after, we'll never know. But certainly any chance of that was lost by putting them in with hardened criminals. Totally. And even in 1960, there were opportunities for him to do rehabilitation stuff, all of which he declines to do. But he becomes a model prisoner. And throughout his long time in prison thereafter, he is a model prisoner. He is hardworking. He is organised. He is clean. He is respectful to the guards. He doesn't cause trouble and he works and the prison system likes him because he's very useful because he'll work in the kitchens, he'll work in the gardens. He's one of these task-orientated people. And when I spoke to prison staff who had met Angus Sinclair throughout his prison service, they all said, oh, Gus, oh, Gus, I, oh, Gus was a great guy. Yeah. Oh, I love Gus, love Gus here. And, and that organisation is interesting. That organisation actually carries through is offending as well. Also, Tom, the fact that he's affable and maybe has a charm of his own because the girls we've already spoke about, his victims, starting in the World's End, he obviously cajoled these girls in the World's End pub and from the pub and into a vehicle at some point. So he did have attributes of charm that he could turn on when it suited him. Yes, he did. He had a good line in chat and he was never a drinker, so he's never drunk. He was always clean and tidy as well. A lot of other uh, people we spoke to remarked on that. At a time in the early 60s when working class men weren't always clean and tidy, he was always very clean and and tidy. Had his life gone a different way, Angus Sinclair would have been a very good soldier. He was task-orientated and driven. He was was hardworking, fastidious in his tasks, and he would have been probably a good soldier. So anyway, Angus Sinclair goes into Aberdeen Prison and he does a variety of jobs there. One of the jobs he does, and this becomes significant later, 
One of the jobs they have in Aberdeen Prison, he subsequently ends up in Peterhead, but the two are related. Anyway, when he's up there, one of the things they do is they tie up and they make fishermen's nets. So they've got a contract for the fishing industry to make nets for the local fishermen. And making nets involves tying a lot of knots. And you've got to be very precise in the way that you tie knots. And later this becomes significant. So anyway, he gets a 10-year sentence, but when he's uh, completed eight years, he's sent down to Edinburgh Prison at Sockton, which runs the, the Scottish Prison Services Training for Freedom Scheme, TFF. And training for freedom means that they take young people and they try their best to set them on the right road and they say, what skill would you like to learn? And they've got upholstery shops and they've got painting and decorating and they've got car mechanics and all the rest of it to try and give these young men a skill before they set out in the world to try and keep them away from crime. And Angus Sinclair develops a real talent for painting and decorating. And he is very good, typical of him. Anything he does, he does well. And he's very neat and he's very smart and people hold him in very high regard uh, as a painter and decorator. And during the last few months of his sentence, when he's at Edinburgh Prison, He's actually allowed to go out under supervision to carry out painting and decorating jobs, which the prison managed to contract. And by this means, he begins to know the layout and the streets of Edinburgh and where about all the things in Edinburgh is. So he becomes familiar with Edinburgh. So he gets out of prison in 1968 and he very quickly meets a young nurse called Sadie who he takes up with shortly after release and Sadie and him get together and eventually they get married and they live for a while up in the south side of Edinburgh just for about 18 months, two years, for about 1968 to 1970. And then they both move back to Glasgow, back to the centre of Glasgow, the townhead area of Glasgow, where he was born in Braftop and back to his roots, where he sets up as a painter and decorator, and she follows the trade as a nurse, and they get married, and they have a, a wee boy as well. And it, it seems that all is set fair then. It seems that Angus Sinclair is on a fairly yeah. even path, but what Sadie didn't know, or perhaps she knew a little bit, was that he was very quickly getting involved in crime. Tom, that's interesting. As police officers, we know a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers, a lot of young men have problems in their early teens, late teens, into adulthood. And as police officers, we always thought if you can get him a job and a relationship, then he'll calm down. And probably 98, 99% of young men do. They start to work. They start to earn money. They have a spouse. And a kid, again, is another addition to that that they've got a responsibility for. And they tend to stick to a more or less straight and narrow thereafter. So it's very interesting that he went through these steps and had the opportunity then to go on. He could have started his own business. He was good at what he was doing. He had all the attributes to go on and be a success at whatever he wanted to do. But there was this underlying problem. He did. And you're absolutely right. I can't count the number of young criminals I dealt with who settled down once they got a girlfriend. Yeah. Simply because the girlfriend or their wife didn't want the police coming knocking at their door at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And they straightened them out. But Angus Sinclair became involved in petty crime. Robbery, he became friendly with people who engaged in amateur pornography. 
and he would take photographs of local women wearing their underwear and stuff like that, which he'd try and sell the images. Said he found some of these images in his car, one of his cars. So there was domestic strife, and he was bringing home things he shouldn't have had, items of jewellery and bits and pieces that he got through housebreaking or robbery or resetting. He was involved in the sort of periphery of a lot of criminal activity. But he managed to carry on with that, and she managed to tolerate that up until about 1975, when things got intolerable and they split up and she basically kicked him out of the house. That's when the problem starts. And so we see a pattern from that time to the time he is arrested in 1980, a period of about 18 months of offending, ever more serious sexual offending. And so Angus Sinclair is a man who, highly organised, who lives his life in discrete boxes. So he's a painter and decorator. He's a father and husband. He's a robber who, because he's a small man, and I should have mentioned he's a small but very muscular man, because he's a small man, when he goes in to do a robbery on a, on a rent collector or something like that, he goes in with a hammer and he uses extreme violence from the start. And this is because he knows that he's too small to sustain a long fight with a bigger person. Extreme violence from the start to overcome any resistance. He's a pornographer, he's a robber, and of course he is a sexual predator. And all of these activities he manages to keep discreet in these small compartments of his life. Highly organised, wow. highly motivated, highly energetic. A very dangerous, dangerous man. Tom, there's a real anomaly here for me as a detective. In the crime intelligence world, we tend to categorise people criminals by their MO, by their geography, by the traits, by their history, by their conviction. And it seems that there's quite a few anomalies here with Mr. Sinclair, that thieves are generally thieves and they've got their own MOs, but they're not generally violent. They're not generally commonly violent, although we get armed robbery, etc. that's an extension of that. You've then got the fighters who are always in trouble for fighting and for assault and for weapons. and But they're generally quite honest people, if you take my drift. And then you've got the sexual predators of what you're talking about here, who are neither of the other two. And even the sexual predators tend to either favour very young children, young women, or older women, flashers and all that kind of thing going on, thefts from houses, all that kind of stuff and pornography, and, and that industry, feeding that industry. Mr. Sinclair here seems to cross a lot of those boundaries that we would have put in. Did that hinder us in identifying it? It absolutely did, because a lot of people in the CID in Glasgow knew Angus Sinclair as a robber and as a housebreaker, as a thief. Yes. So just as he lived his life in compartments, and his offending was in compartments, so he was seen by the police in a compartment as well. And I think that's one of the learning points from the likes of Sinclair, is that a sexual predator is a criminal as well and may well be offending across a whole range of other crimes. Tom, I remember we had a beast in Govan that was raping young boys, schoolboys, and it's something we'll speak about in another episode. 
But I remember when my colleague and I went to have a look at this, out with the boss's <laughs> instructions, to be honest, because we had an instant room, it was all a major inquiry. But Jim and I went and had a chat with the female and child unit at Govan, at Orkney Street at the time, because they had a separate intelligence system of their own, card index system again, but the only people that were in that were sexual offenders. So in our minds, there's no point in looking at the big crime intelligence system downstairs. We'll go and hone in here because this guy's obviously, he's not just a thief, or, he's none of those things. He's a sexual predator. He's, he's a beast. So that's interesting that, that we would have missed him if he had been Angus Sinclair, I would suggest. Angus Sinclair, then, if you follow his criminal career, he gets in trouble. He's arrested with the possession of a firearm in order to commit a robbery. And then and eventually, in 1980, he is arrested for a whole series of very, very serious sexual offences against children. These he carries out on foot in and around the city centre of Glasgow, and it's always the same MO. It's kind of luring children into a situation very like Catherine Rehill, very like his first offence. So you see this pattern. Would you go and get some sweets for me? With Catherine Rehill, who he killed when he was 15, he asked her to go and get a message for him. When you came back, when she came back to the house, he attacked her and killed her. And so these girls in 79-80, he asked them to go for errands for which he'll give them money. And when they come back, he attacks them in the common stairs. And so he's convicted of them. He is eventually, I, I said earlier, he only pled guilty to one thing. I'm wrong. He pled guilty to, to that as well. Yep. Persuaded by his wife not to bring disgrace upon the family and upon his son. And he pled guilty to these offences as well. And so serious were these offences considered to be by the court. He was given a life sentence. Now, that's, that's very, very, very unusual. But clearly, the court saw both the reports from the Rehill case back in the 60s, but also saw that any one of these children who he had attacked might have died. Yeah. They were so serious in their commission and so violent in their attacks. So he's in jail then for life in 1980, and he's there, and again settles down, model prisoner, runs the kitchens, paints and decorates, becomes a kind of, of an elder and sort of father confessor in the prison system. Young men go to him for advice. Tom, if I could just uh, take us back one wee step there, because I'm hopeful that we'll have a guest uh, in some shape or form who was my old boss in the Serious Crime Squad and in G Division thereafter as Detective Superintendent. But Joe Jackson was involved in the apprehension of Sinclair. And I remember reading in his book about him interviewing him. And you're right about the wife, because he said that uh, the wife was brought in during the course of the interview to say to him, why don't you just tell these guys what you've done? Was that a new wife or was that his ex-wife? You know? He's only had one wife. Right. They were never divorced. Right. They were never divorced. Apparently, he asked, this might be folklore now, but apparently he asked, and we never had tape-recorded interviews at that time either, which uh, is a shame, but he asked to be castrated, if he could be castrated to help him uh, stop doing these things. I've not heard of that, and I don't know whether that is true. He wasn't the kind of person to interact much with the police, and I find that surprising, but uh, anyway, who, who knows? The interesting thing about that case was that we spoke earlier about a conference which took place in 1980 yes. 
between heads of CID, Lothian and Strathclyde, to talk about the World's End murders and the murders of Anna Kenny, Agnes Cooney, Hilda McCauley, and to see whether they could link them together. Literally, at the same time as that conference was being held, Sinclair was actually in custody for these other charges. And, and here we have another example of compartmentalised thinking. Yeah. Because as far as I know, Sinclair's arrest for these serious sexual attacks on children was never linked or never suggested that it could be linked with the outstanding murders. And we see an example of almost like tunnel thinking, which we ourselves used to do. Yeah. Because a housebreaker's a housebreaker, a robber's a robber, yeah. a car thief's a car thief. Somebody who offends against children only ever offends against children. And somebody who abducts young women in Edinburgh doesn't attack young children in Glasgow. But it's two different people, obviously, isn't it? The victimology is wrong. You're talking about the victimology. But interestingly, in 2001, in 1978, a young woman called Mary Gallagher was attacked and killed in Glasgow. Yep. And she was strangled with her own clothes. And the culprit was seen as being a man on his own, but was never traced. However, in 2001, that was 1978, in 2001, while the lab in Glasgow were making inquiries into another case altogether, they came across a sample which they found matched the Mary Gallagher case, and that was Angus Sinclair. The interesting thing about Mary Gallagher, poor me so, was she was tiny. She was childlike. Right. And so, to all intents and purposes, what he was doing was attacking a child, even though she was a young woman. That has echoes of Robert Black as well with the 15-year-old yeah. girl. Yes. South. Yeah. 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 So when we come across him, Sinclair's in prison. He's the model prisoner. He's in Peterhead by that time, running the prison kitchens and doing an excellent job. And he is serving two life sentences, one in 1980 for the attacks on the children and the other in 2001 for the 1978 murder of Mary Gallagher. And that's where he is. We've found it all about Angus Sinclair, and we know he's going to be a very tough nut to crack. We know he's not going to tell us very much, but we've got time in our hands because he's not going anywhere, and he's not a danger to the public. We simply sit back and we try to find out who the other man was. Remember that we had this other DNA profile that we've had from the very, very start, from the very dawn of DNA in the 1980s, we've had this other profile, and we're then going to try and find out who that other man is. Which is not the same fishing expedition as it was for Sinclair himself, because you've got his associates now, you know who his family are, you know where his haunts are, where his work is, his colleagues. So at least you've got a starting point. Exactly. You do not go committing a brutal double murder like that with some complete stranger you've just met. Yeah. It's someone who you've offended with or someone who you're friendly with or someone who is within your circle. Once we'd identified Angus Sinclair, we then got our heads together and said, look, this is going to be bigger than a single force, bigger than the world's end. Let's get round the table. And we formed Operation Trinity. And Operation Trinity was three forces, Lothian and Border, Strathclyde and Tayside, because we thought there were two outstanding murders in Tayside, the Templeton Woods murders, as they were called, and we thought that Sinclair might have been responsible for them as well. As it happened, he wasn't. As it happened, 
we discovered that he was in prison when they took place, so we quickly ruled him out. But that's where the, the, the name Operation Trinity came. And so it was a Strathclyde, Lothian and Borders combined operation. I was appointed as officer and overall command of that. I was the deputy chief for uh, Lothian Borders at the time, about to retire, but stayed on, was asked to stay on, so stayed on to do Operation Trinity. An excellent detective superintendent, Ian Thomas in Lothian, and an excellent superintendent in Glasgow, Eddie McCusker. So we came together. And the first thing we had to do, of course, was dig out all the old card records for Anna Kenny, Hilda McCauley, Agnes Cooney, because they had not been back record converted onto homes at this point in time. So the first thing we had to do was get them all on the homes database so that the inquiries could speak to each other. We also had a huge benefit because we got the assistance of a group of people that I'd never dealt with before, I'd heard of before, I'd never dealt with before, called the National Crime Faculty. Mm-hmm. Now, the National Crime Faculty are based at Brams Hill, and it's basically like a, it's almost like a consultancy. They've got a whole lot of contacts of forensic psychologists and scientists and all sorts of people who they can call upon to give advice. Yeah. And they were absolutely great. And the reason we got onto them, we, we had a, a very good, he ended up as head of CID, a guy called Gary Flanagan. Gary Flanagan was a detective sergeant attached to the National Crime Faculty. And so he knew exactly what potential lay there. And so as soon as Operation Trinity got off the ground, he was on the phone to me and said, listen, boss, we can help you here. I've got some great people here. And he really did. And amongst them, he had a group of people, again, I'd never come across, forensic investigators. Now, forensic investigators are different from forensic scientists in that with a forensic scientist, if you've got an article with a stain on it, you could take it to them and say, what's this? And they'll say it's blood or it's semen or it's water or it's whatever. What a forensic investigator will say is it's blood and here's how it may have got there. Right. And so yeah. their ability to interpret yeah. is much, much better than the old traditional forensic scientist that sticks to their discipline. And these forensic investigators, they were really born of the Irish Troubles because most of them had been involved in the examination, the forensic examination of tiny bomb fragments and trying to piece together tiny little bits of bombs and trying to see whether there was any common signatures with these explosives. So incredibly clever and very impressive people they were and very helpful to us. So this is a group of experts. It's a resource. Would it generally be available to every force in the country then? It was available to every force in the country, and they were trying their best to, as it were, to justify themselves. Right. To, I mean, it was a very small team working at Rams Hill, but it was the connections they had. So, for instance, when they got the information about the world's end, they said, oh, well, so-and-so might be able to help, and such-and-such might be able to help. They also offered you the services of a an SIO from a similar crime. And I was lucky enough to meet and work with the SIO who had dealt with the Fred and Rosemary West killings in Gloucestershire. It was a fascinating guy. Yeah. And very, very interesting. And with a lot of relevant advice. Have you still got his phone number? <laughs> no, I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> that's a pity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I know what you mean about the, yes, that's blood on the wall. But a ballistics or, or a scientist would say that's blood on the wall. 
And this is the pattern of it is because this is what happened to get it there in that shape and form. Uh, that's so right. that's a fact. So it was, it was not only that this is DNA, they would say, this is how this DNA arrived here. Here is an interpretation of how this DNA arrived here. And it cannot have arrived here by roots A, B, and C. It must have been root D. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, from um, A or, yes. Yes, or, or where it became crucial with us was uh, the DNA on the, on the bindings because what they were able to say was that this DNA would not have come about from a casual touch, yeah. but from Plus, a hard grip, yeah. from a hard grip. Yeah. And that knots must have been tied by a certain person because of the, the DNA left within that knot tied tight. And of course, that's hugely compelling evidence. Especially for Sinclair, who had a lot of experience yeah. in tying knots. Precisely. We're, we're at the stage, we've got these people, and we're looking for this other man. We're looking for this other man. And we start with Angus Sinclair. And of course, he's been in prison uh, by that time for 24 years. He has no immediate friends or associates. Then we start looking at family, and we start looking at family members, and we find that in the sample that we've been looking for all these years, there's a very distinctive Y chromosome, the male chromosome, which is very distinctive and which is identical to a chromosome in the family, on the male family of Angus Sinclair's wife. So the other man was one of Angus Sinclair's brothers-in-law. Now, Angus Sinclair had something like five, I think, or six brothers-in-law, but most of them were out of the picture. Two or three of them were dead. Others were in prison. We eliminated a number of others. And so we were left with one brother who we knew had hung about with Angus Sinclair at the time, a man called Gordon Hamilton, because that was Angus Sinclair's wife's maiden name, Gordon Hamilton. The problem was that Gordon Hamilton was dead. Gordon Hamilton had died in 1996 of alcohol-related problems. A couple of wee things, Tom, before you go on. Did that come from the DNA of uh, Sinclair's ex-wife then? Had we sampled her? Yes. During the course of the inquiries, uh, impressions would have been taken from her or samples. It was the very start of what what is now very common. It's called familial DNA. If, for instance, you are an offender and you've left your DNA at a crime scene, the police don't have to catch you because if they catch your son doing something, yeah. they'll track back to you Yeah, because of this distinctive Y chromosome. Okay. I think DNA is something that we'll probably, we're going to come across it time and time again throughout our podcast, and it's something that we'll revisit, but encourage questions about it that people can ask us about the, how the police have used it over the years. Because much like fingerprints and footprints and ballistics and all sorts of uh, forensic tools that we have, they grow and grow over the years as we get more and more database and more and more experience of using them and, com- and ways of comparing them. So that's very interesting, Tom. Thanks for that. And at the end of the day, it's about expert interpretation. Yeah. So in other words, what you end up with is if you have a positive hit, if you've got an exact DNA match, then a scientist will get up in court and they will say that this is a one in 400 million chance of being a different person or things like that. Yeah. So it's like fingerprints. Yeah. None of it's an exact science, but as the, the technology 
advances, so it becomes more and more compelling. As fingerprints have done over the year, over the yes. year, which is something yes. else that we'll speak about. And I think currently we've just got a new addition to the DNA abilities. They call it DNA 24 or something like that. But we'll come back to all that because it's fascinating in its own right. The other thing I hoped you would clarify is obviously Sinclair's incarcerated whilst all this is going on. He's in prison and he knows nothing about these additional inquiries about his brother-in-law, etc., the DNA being identified, stuff like that. No, we're trying our hardest not to let Angus Sinclair know what we're about. Now, it's not easy because, of course, as soon as Operation Trinity started with press speculation and Angus Sinclair's name was mentioned, we just stonewalled the whole thing. He may have, he may have got an inclination we were looking at him, but he certainly didn't know that all we knew about him. Yeah. And we were content to leave him in the dark and let him stew until the time was right for us to go and see him. Okay, so you did that when your inquiries were at the right stage to go and interview him? Now, first of all, we had to nail down positively Gordon Hamilton because we had the sample on Helen's coat and by a process of elimination, it had to be Gordon Hamilton, but we had to find some thing, some earthly remnant of Gordon Hamilton to actually nail it down 100%. And Gordon Hamilton, he had been cremated, so nothing remained of his body. And unusually, most of us leave something behind. Most of us leave a watch or a wallet or something we've touched or some precious object. Gordon Hamilton left absolutely nothing behind at all. Wow. And again, this is where the forensic investigator comes in. What did he do? How did he lead his life? And he said, well, he did a bit of painting and decorating to help Angus Sinclair. He wasn't as good as Angus, but he did wee bits of primary stuff, right? Where did he do that? Oh, well, he decorated some flats in parts of Glasgow. What did he do? Well, he painted and decorated and he fitted one of these polystyrene coving things round the, round the ceiling. <laughs> Aha, says the forensic investigator. Right. Let's get that coving and get it off because behind that coving, you've got a veritable time capsule. And so Alan Jones, the chief inspector at the time, he tracked down where Gordon Hamill had worked, the houses he'd been in, etc. managed to get access to them, managed to persuade the people who were living there they wanted to tear their living room apart, got the scientists in, took down the coving, examined carefully behind the coving using the most sensitive of techniques, and they found traces of Gordon Hamilton wow. behind a polystyrene coven <laughs> of a piece of painting and decorating that he had done 20-odd years before. Fantastic. Tom, you and I know that feeling when all the legwork, and I believe that you have to do the legwork to get that result, but the 99.9% .9 of legwork and tedium and paper shuffling, and witness statement taking, and it all comes together when you lift that coping. It was a fantastic result, and a huge credit to Alan Jones for doggedly pursuing that, and recognising the enormous skill and the ability of the forensic investigators, and recognising just what a powerful asset they were, and using them to their absolute utmost. So yeah, it was a remarkable piece, and I remember sitting explaining this to a procurator fiscal, and they were just looking at me with their mouths so, <laughs> open. They must be joking. Said, oh, no, this is how it is. So we had 
we identified Gordon Hamilton. But of course, that's the good part. The bad part is that Gordon Hamilton's dead, yeah. and the very best co-accused to have is a dead one. Yeah, yeah. And Angus Sinclair would be more than aware of that. And we were certain then that when we did come to speak to Angus Sinclair, one of the first things he would say is he would try and lay blame yeah. on his brother-in-law, who was not there to defend himself. And, and is that what happened ultimately when you interviewed? No. When we interviewed, he said absolutely nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing to anything. Nothing. <laughs> he just sat there staring at us for hours and hours and hours and hours. But, of course, when he came to trial, yeah, then the defence yes. Yes. came in. See, I used to use that. We all used it. But fellow detectives used to say to me, oh, I got nothing from that interview. But if they said nothing, then my job was to make the allegations as forcefully as I could and horrific, make them horrific, because the ultimate goal was to be able to say, for us to be able to say in court or indicate to a jury that if you were accused of this, would you not have something to say about it rather than no comment? Absolutely. And, of course, it tripped him up at the end of the day because we'll come to the trial, the second trial in a minute or two. Okay. Of, of course, when he at last appeared in court and he came up with all sorts of cuff and bull stories about what had happened, yeah. then the first thing that the, the advocate deputy said was, why didn't you tell us this before, yeah. Mr. Sinclair? Yes. You were interviewed for 14 hours yeah. and you said nothing. Why did you? And of course, there's evidence that lawyers and judges find compelling, and then there's evidence that juries find compelling. Yeah. yeah. And they're not always the same thing. Yeah. Believe it or not, we have to wrap this up at some point soon. And then it's quite a nice point, actually, because the next time we talk, we'll come into the, the trial itself and, and the court case and the result of that, that first court case without giving too much away. But all of this is public record and probably quite well known. And what we do here at Crime Time Inc. is go behind the curtain, if you like, to the things that the media had no way of knowing about. Tom, we'll carry on where we left off here with the trial and with uh, getting this guy to court. And I'll look forward to it and speak soon. Next time on Crime Time Inc. Life was a tragedy. His daughter was abducted and murdered. He never overcame that. And neither did his wife, and his wife died prematurely. And on her deathbed, Moraine promised her that he would see the investigation through and that he would see justice done for Helen. And he told us that. And of course, at the end of the day, he did just that. Great man, and as important to this investigation as any detective. I was asked to say a few words at his funeral. This was a, a man of immense character. A lovely man.